0: everyone. It's Adam Farkas. Welcome to another edition of ODY Radio. And today, we are going to continue with part two of our interview with Gil Webb. Are all about negotiating with insurance companies. So let's pick it up right where we left off. You've mentioned the case now where you actually can go in and negotiate. But what if you hit the brick wall? What if you get to a place where you have a payer who won't even speak to you, <laughs> where they say we don't contract with optometrists for these services? What, what do you actually do in those cases?
1: Yeah, and that's, that's a big problem. Um, if it's a situation where they say, we contract directly with ESP, you've got to go talk to them, the game's over. I mean, that is, It is what it is, and if you want to participate, you've got to go talk to DSP. Now, there may be exceptions. You may be able to get in, let's say, through a, a hospital system or through an IPA that has a contract that is not part of VSP. But if VSP or IMET or someone like that has an exclusive right to contract, for optometry services, or contract optometrists for medical eye care services, the deal is, that's it. Now, if they're not there in the way, and the plan just says, you know, we don't contract with optometrists for those services, then you need to look and say, okay, uh, hmm, this fight may be bigger than I can fight as an individual optometrist, but maybe my state can do something. And then you look at, for example, Kentucky or Texas, and you see what those states have done uh, with their optometric societies going through their legislators, legislatures, let's try that again, legislators and their legislatures, to open up panel uh, opportunities to optometrists. And in those instances, those health plans did not willingly open up their panels. They only did it because the legislation uh, or legislative pressure forced them. So the payers are not about to go out of their way, out of their comfort zones, unless they're pushed, or coaxed uh, or threatened and you know threatened really being the most powerful and perhaps the only effective motivator in some cases when the plans are told you cannot discriminate now that may be any willing provider it may be some uh, offshoot of any willing provider but the state legislator legislator is boy i keep messing up that word the state legislature tells the health plans you simply have to open your panels to optometry it's right the so
0: doctor- so, so, Gil, you're saying then, in this case it's usually useful to appeal to a higher authority um, if you want to get anything done?
1: If it's a situation where they simply tell you we don't contract with autometrists, then it's bigger than the individuality you can fight. If they tell you you have to go through XYZ, third-party intermediary, that may be what it is, but you should always investigate if there are other ways to get in through a back door. us so say through a hospital system, through an IPA there's some other means that you can avoid the uh, the big gorilla. Sure. And you know,
0: you mentioned uh, the case where VSP say uh, has control over the contracts in a certain uh, certain region. What do you do in that case? Can you go to VSP and, and try to negotiate, or is it sort of a, a hopeless case?
1: Well, again, it depends. Uh, I don't know of anybody who's done a really whiz-bang job of negotiating with DSP. I know I've read on OD Wire of some instances where doctors have said I've been able to get my rates increased but also many many more that said they haven't. Now I also know of examples with other third-party intermediaries where they have been able to negotiate significantly better contracts because that third-party intermediary perceived that that practice brought some value. Perhaps some geographical coverage, perhaps some marketing advantage, but something that differentiated that practice from every other practice in the neighborhood, or every other practice in the county. If you can differentiate your practice and give that payer some reason to pay you more, you've got a chance. Now, you have to think about, let's say, from the payer's perspective. If you were the payer negotiating with you, you gotta think, you know, why, why would I negotiate with me? What do I bring to this payer that's different? If you were the payer sitting there saying, why should I offer this, this doctor any more than we're already paying him or paying her? What do they bring me? What do they bring my plan that's different, that makes it worth, makes an incentive for us to offer him or her more money? If you cannot differentiate your practice, you cannot justify some reason that you deserve to be paid more you've got a real hard battle, probably an insurmountable problem to fight.
2: Sure. Now, do you, how about the the new VSP, the warm and fuzzy VSP that wants optometry to love them? Do you think they'll be easier to
1: negotiate with? Ah, uh, no. <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't. I, I don't think the, the warm and fuzzy VSP exists. <laughs> I, I think the warm, I think the warm and fuzzy VSP disappeared. Back sometime after 1955 when a group of optometrists in Oakland, California, formed the company. And uh, I suspect that probably somewhere in the middle of the 1990s um, when VSP took a decided change in their marketing and went from marketing substantially to employers, employer groups, and instead started going after health plans. And that actually really started. when went into the 80s, went to the early 90s they really started going after the HMO and PPO business, I think the warm and fuzzy VSP went away. And then when IMED became a major player, a major competitor, and started eating some lunch from DSP, I think that was really the end of the warm and fuzzy. I think it just got down to the down and dirty dollars and cents, and uh, I don't see, on, this, uh, on, on my crystal ball anyway, Uh, It's very cloudy in seeing a 150 VSP.
0: Well, you know, Gil, you just mentioned something really interesting, the fact that there is IMED, and that these two actually are fierce competitors of one another. Is there any way that a clinician can sort of use that to their advantage, the fact that there are two very fierce competitors going tooth and nail against each other in the market?
1: Well, if you can bring something to VSP or something to IMED, that they can't get otherwise, and you would tell, let's say, VSP or IMED, I will agree not to join the other if you will take me at a nice deal, perhaps that might be worked out. Um, if you're an optometric practice that provides you know, 95 or 97% of your business is routine vision exams and eyeglasses, and maybe two or 3% is some medical eye care, I don't see that you're gonna bring anything that they can't get from a, a plethora of other providers in your community. If you uh, have especially, let's say, you are focused on pediatric eye care and you're the only practice in, i uh, say, a 30-mile radius that is specifically set up to deal with children that recognize that children are not small adults, that their faces are different, that they're, the way you refract them and, and the construction of your lanes are different, and you can offer that to one of them and you say, I won't give it to the other... Perhaps, again, you might be able to, uh, perhaps not. It depends upon how they perceive the values they bring to them.
0: Right. So with all of this going on, what are, in your experience, the realities of actually negotiating for better reimbursements? Is this something that that you've seen has worked? And sort of relative to ophthalmology, how is optometry doing in, in that
1: area? Well, I think optometrists, as a whole would be surprised to to know how many ophthalmology practices are being paid at or below Medicare allowable for some substantial number of the services they provide. 80% of Medicare allowable, 85, 90% of Medicare allowable is not uncommon. Below 80% of Medicare allowable is unfortunately not that uncommon. And it may not even be 80% or 90% of current year Medicare allowable. It might be 80 or 90 percent of 2008 or 2009 or 2006 Medicare allowable. I mean, it's just astounding how much the health plans are grinding down on ophthalmologists around the country. And this is on surgical services, on E&Ms, on, on, on medical eye care, on uh, provision codes, on the eye codes. It just doesn't matter. now. Clearly, there are plenty of ophthalmology practices that are doing very, very well and getting paid above Medicare allowable, but in some markets, in in Florida, it's it's a cesspool down here. It really is. Uh, And below Medicare allowable is the rule rather than the exception. So if an optometrist says, you know, I'm going to get 110% of Medicare allowable and health plan comes back and says we're paying 85%, They shouldn't feel they're being discriminated against because they don't have MD or DO after their name. Instead, they have OD. It's not the initials in many cases. It's just the way the plans are negotiating because they have plenty of alternative practices. If Dr. X won't take the deal, Dr. Y will. If Dr. Y will, Dr. Z will because they want the patients. Now, also, there are some plans that do differentiate their fee schedules based upon whether a physician or an optometrist provides the services. I've seen plenty of contracts that said we'll pay X dollars for CPT, blah, 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 for an ophthalmologist, and we'll pay Y dollars for the same CPT to an optometrist, and it's lower, and it might be substantially lower. And that seems fundamentally absurd, especially in light of the fact that Medicare considers them the same as far as payments and pays them the same. And yet the commercial payers, some of them very, very freely and very, very openly say, we're just not going to pay optometrists as much. And that may be a battle you can negotiate, and it may be a battle you simply can't negotiate if the payer its heels and says, here's the deal, take it or leave it. And you try your best, and you fight your hardest, and you come down to a, a decision at some point that you've gotten as far as you can. And if you're going to take the contract, you, you've done negotiating, you making an educated decision. You try it for one year only. If it works out, great. If it doesn't work out, no skin off your nose. You bail out on that contract.
0: Right, and so if the payers really do dig in, they, they just say no to everything. What's the bottom line? What what do you do if they're just absolutely inflexible, they're not giving you the time of day, what do you do?
1: My advice is to walk away. Uh, any, con- any payer, that hands you a contract and says this is our standard contract we won't change it take it or leave it they're showing you a big yellow flag probably a big red flag they're saying to you we reserve the right to mess with you to mess with your finances to mess with you administratively and if you're stupid enough to sign the contract without any negotiations so be it and that's really what they're saying they're saying if you're stupid enough to sign the contract without any ability to negotiate any of the terms you deserve what you
2: get. You know it's very think, interesting how how many people on OD Wire have been willing to walk away, and then they look at their their gross and their net after a year, and they said, "Yeah, my gross is down a bit, but my net is just as high," and they're absolutely delighted that they walked away.
1: So and, that's, and Paul, and Paul, that gets to the idea of saying there are certain contracts where well, you, you go out. the doctor can look at your appointment schedule and, and you're booked out for two months. And you look in your reception area and every chair is full. And yet you look at your book and you say, I'm so damn busy, why am I not making money? And the answer is you're working too damn hard for too little return. And the, your, your schedule is full of patients from poorly paying plans. And so the patients from the better paying plans, or maybe you know, those few cash patients you have can't get in for two months. They go elsewhere. So They're going to walk.
2: And this is the old expression, you're uh, you're you're making it up in volume, right? <laughs> you're, you're losing on every patient but making it up in volume.
1: Uh, and, so, and that's one of the absolute true falsehoods of managed care. You can never make it up on volume, and you can only take profitable patients to the bank. You don't take volume to the bank, you take profitable patients to the bank, and every patient has to be profitable. If it's not, that's a contract you either need to negotiate make them profitable, or toss it. You can't afford a contract that loses money. You know,
0: I don't want to ask you a political question, Gil, but I'm going to ask you a political question. <laughs> political optometric question, that is. It sounds to me like from what you're saying, what I've been gathering just from listening to this whole thing, that you believe in many areas in the country there is actually an oversupply of doctors, and that's really eroding the doctor's ability to negotiate effectively on these contracts. And this is true for ophthalmology and optometry. It's just it's
1: not true limited for- to optometry. It's correct, it's true for both. Uh, Anywhere where you have, you can open the phone book and you can see a whole bunch of doctors in that specialty. You're definitely gonna have, if not an oversupply, certainly enough doctors that the health plan can play hardball if they really want to. It doesn't mean they all do, but it certainly means they've got the flexibility to do that because they know the doctors are scrambling They know that doctors are are worried about having access to patients. They know that doctors are worried if they have appointment slots that are open. And so the health plans capitalize on the the biggest four-letter word in managed care, and that's fear, because the doctors are so fearful of being excluded from having access to a particular population of patients that they'll sign the contract on the assumption that any income, any revenue is better than no revenue, than better than an empty appointment slot, whereas maybe if you can't fill up your day five full days maybe half a day marketing your practice and not seeing patients might be more productive maybe half a day doing something else other than seeing patients to grow your practice might be better than seeing patients on whom you're losing money simply because you're afraid of having empty appointment slots that's that's a hard thing to get your hands around the idea of fear, but it really is a powerful motivator for the health plans. Right. They, but they play that for all it's worth.
0: Right. And I've got one more question for you, Gil, if you could sort of, you know, put, a, put get your crystal ball out and look a little bit into the future. Um, there's a lot of talk on ODYR about the Affordable Care Act. You know, a lot of talk, but not actually much is being said. Can you, from your expert opinion, sort of tell us what you see with the Affordable Care Act and, and how it's actually changing the way uh, these contracts are being negotiated?
1: Well, it, it's interesting to try and, and look at, for example, like these accountable care organizations that are being formed around the country and saying, how are eye doctors, whether they're optometrists or ophthalmologists, going to fit in? And it, it's clear that the accountable care organizations are, are very focused on primary care and on the hospitals, on, on inpatient care. And yet so much of eye care, you know, virtually all of eye care is done in the office or on an outpatient basis. and so. Ophthalmologists and ophthalmologists have relatively less contact with hospitals and relatively less contact with primary care physicians than, let's say, a cardiologist, cardiac surgeon, a gastroenterologist, uh, other physicians who are much more heavily uh, referral-based than eye doctors are. And so the question is, how do eye doctors get involved in these accountable care organizations or get themselves positioned so that this, this legislation, however it ultimately shakes out, whether however, whatever ultimately gets approved or, or, or not approved or, or reversed, how do you participate? I think the first thing that doctors need to do is learn as much as they can from their state optometric society. I know on the ophthalmology side, the state ophthalmology societies are pumping out tons of information for the ophthalmology community on accountable care organizations on these various. Uh, forms of uh, health care, you know, whether we can call it Obamacare or whatever, but health care reform that may or may not be coming down the road, trying to position the ophthalmology community to understand how they can participate or how they can avoid problems. Or how they can at least become involved in what's going on. And in some cases, for example, that's getting themselves involved with the hospital committees of various types who are putting together their structure for dealing with accountable care organizations. Basically saying, we as ophthalmologists don't want our destiny determined by primary care physicians or different by other specialists who know nothing about ophthalmology. Optometry, I think, needs to do basically the same sort of thing and say, how can we get involved with some of these organizations at the planning stage so that non-optometrists are not making the decisions controlling how optometry is going to be delivered, or where it's going to be delivered, or when it's going to be delivered, or does it need a referral or does it not need a referral, and what within our scope of service can we provide if we are participants in this accountable care organization? Or if we're we're not participants, how do we still see patients? So I think your state optometric societies really need to be pushed to educate the community and to get as involved as they can at the Early stages of getting optometry as a profession worked into these accountable care organizations or other entities that are participating in the law, however it ultimately shakes out.
2: You know, Gil, you've created probably as many questions as you gave us answers.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess guess everything in managed period depends.
2: It's been an incredible hour with you. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, we can continue this conversation on OD wire and I'm sure it will be. Uh, you are available, I hope, uh, yep. to answer yep. more questions on, on the topic. Sure. Uh, so it was just a pleasure uh, having to spend this time with you.
0: Great. Well, thanks so much, Gil. And uh, any parting words for,
1: for our community? Um, Education is what you get when you read the fine print. Experience is what you get when you don't. <laughs> <laughs> that's a
0: good thought Yeah. <laughs> well thanks so much, And, uh, and I, I think that um, One thing that, that I hope that everyone got out of this Is that you should not Go into this process blind At least that's what I got out of it What well, I, well, I got out of it is You
2: better have someone holding your hand With those contracts
1: Don't go <laughs> well, <keep> it alone <laughs> put, put it another way I want to make sure that optometrists don't suffer From a very very common affliction in the phalmic business, and that's neural dyslexia. It's the inability to read the writing on the wall.
0: (laughs) Well, great. Well, Gil, thanks so
2: much. Thanks so much, Gil.
1: Okay. Bye-bye.